The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Cecile Hansens. Dr. Hansens is a research professor of epidemiology at Emory University's Rollins School of Public Health. She's a leading expert in risk prediction with a special interest in the genetic prediction of common diseases and traits. She teaches prediction research as well as critical thinking. She holds degrees in economic psychology and epidemiology. She was born, raised, and trained in the Netherlands. And today we're going to be talking about the role of genetic testing, both in prediction as well as in the management and treatment of disease, and specifically um, with some questions about personalized medicine. Cecile, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to be able to have this conversation because I think your insights and, and knowledge about this topic is just phenomenal. Um, you know, I've been uh, kind of watching a lot of the uh, written articles you put out, both in publications um, and in a lot of you know, just tweets. And I think you really touch on a lot of the questions uh, that people have when the question of genetic testing comes up. Um, I thought maybe a good starting point would be um, to, you know, talk a bit about, um, you know, what's out there in terms of genetic testing, um, you know, for example, their direct-to-consumer companies, or even some that are telling parents to test their kid for their athletic ability to see if their child can, you know, have the genes to be an Olympic athlete. Um, and, and certainly there are benefits to genomics, but as with anything else, there are always limitations. Um, so can you maybe just start off by talking about, you know, just genetics and disease as well as our traits, like the number of genes involved, a little bit about the genetic basis of the diseases that are common. Yeah, um, I, think that's a, I think that's a great start. So what when I teach about um, genetic prediction, um, I always find it important to um, to explain the entire um, the entire variety of diseases that we have. because genetic testing is not just one test that is good or that is bad. How good or bad or how predictive or not predictive a genetic test is depends largely on what disease or what what trait are you going to predict. Um, so on the one end of diseases and traits, mostly diseases um, that are, can be very well predicted using DNA are the single gene disorders or the rare syndromes uh, and some familial forms of disease. Um, an example that I always give is, uh, is Huntington disease. It's a familial form of uh, dementia and, and people who carry a mutation in their genes, in their Huntington gene, they know for sure that they will get the Huntington during their life. They do not know at which age, they do not know how severe, but they will get the disease because the only cause for that disease is in is a genetic mutation. It also means that the people don't carry a genetic mutation, that they don't, will not, uh, not get the disease. And there are 
many diseases like that, they're all very, very rare. Um, and also many uh, syndromes in, in children who themselves do not uh, reproduce, but their parents can, can be carrier of, an, uh, of a mutation or a de novo mutation. So that uh, in the very beginning of cell division, there comes an error in and then that, that, uh, um, that leads to disease. So those are the diseases that are just where the genetics plays a large role in getting or not getting the disease. That's one side of the spectrum. The familiar breast cancer, familiar colorectal cancer um, is also in that, in that area. So if you have a breast cancer mutation for breast cancer, your risk of breast cancer gets very, very high. If you don't have the mutation, your risk is not zero because there are other causes of breast cancer as well, um, but it's much lower. But on the other end of the spectrum, where you come to really questioning whether we can predict diseases as well, is the, the, the complex sort of multifactorial diseases where there's maybe hundreds of thousands of genes that play a role in, for example, uh, becoming uh, overweight and obese, um, in getting diabetes, in heart diseases, for example. There is not one single gene, but, but a combination of many, many, many genes, most of which we may not know yet. But they are um, causing the disease in a huge and enormous complex interaction with the environment, how much you eat, how much you drink, how much stress you have, what your, what your entire lifestyle is. And that makes prediction based on DNA alone very difficult. So on the one hand, we have diseases that are entirely caused by DNA or largely caused by DNA. And on the other end, we have the genetic predispositions. And um, there are many diseases like that, but also many human traits fall in that complex, um, in, in that complex side. And um, so the familiar diseases we have, we test those already um, when we know the, the genetic mutations, we test those in, in genetic, clinical genetic uh, clinics in, in hospitals already for, for years. Um, and it is more that the direct-to-consumer side is in recent years is more focused on the complex diseases, on the risk prediction, on the polygenic risk scores. And um, that is a much more challenging way of uh, predicting. Predictions are not very accurate. Um, and and that, that, that's really the question whether that will have any benefits for, for, for patients. You were also mentioning, I find it very interesting, the genetic of the direct-to-consumer test that cell uh, that predicts athletic performance in children. I would say those are, let me just use the word jokes, because basically what <laughs> out of those thousand, thousand variants that maybe play a role in your, in how athletic you will become, they pick just only one and just test that one. And then when you have a certain genotype, they, they say that you are more likely to be, be for example, a sprinter. But if you are, if the other genotype, you're more likely to be an endurance uh, athlete. Those tests for athletics, for who's your best partner, um, which wine do you want to drink, those are, uh, it's more entertainment that has any value and that you can trust on. Yeah, and that's a really good point because, you know, besides they're not being valued, there, there's potential harm, right? So if you think based on one gene, your child may not have a potential to be a professional athlete, maybe you would not encourage your child or maybe make life decisions in a way that, you know, would not be really how one should interpret that result. Absolutely, absolutely. And I worry a lot um, about how easy it is for lay people um, to misunderstand uh, the value of those tests. Because uh, when seeing the results, they may all, 
you know, everything looks valid, but uh, it needs to, you have to you need to have a little bit of expertise to um, to judge whether the test they are actually using is is valid. Most of the tests, especially for athletics and for all this, uh, your 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 preference for wine and your preference for all these things. That's more a joke. It's a huge misrepresentation of uh, of the science behind it, and it's even worse than what we see, for example, 23andMe doing with predicting um, body weight or diabetes risk. You know, there is behind the test that 23andMe is doing. There's some science behind it. The tests are not very predictive. It's not always very clear what you can do with the results, but at least it's grounded in science. And and so just to kind of recap what you just said, so there, you know, certain diseases, like you mentioned Huntington's disease, a cystic fibrosis, where there's a clear genetic mutation, that type of disease, there's a lot of benefit to genetic testing because if you have that gene, that, that single gene can translate to disease, whereas traits or diseases um, that are common, diabetes, uh, cancer, Alzheimer's, heart disease, they're controlled by thousands of genes, and our ability to test is a finite number of these larger number of genes, so the predictive ability of the genetic test is hence less. Yeah, yeah, and also when you don't, when the environment has such a big influence on getting the disease, uh, for diabetes, for example, we know um, hundreds of uh, variants that play a role, genetic variants that play a role, but altogether, they are less informative, less predictive for saying who is likely to develop, to develop diabetes than stepping on the scale and measure your body weight. Body weight on its own is a much stronger predictor than all your, your genes to, uh, together. And that is, uh, and as long as the environment, so, so, so your lifestyle, your, your, your weight, or how much alcohol you drink, or how much stress you have in midlife, um, as long as those factors play a big role, then the genetic test alone cannot predict who's likely to get it. You know, that's a great point to put genetic testing in perspective, because, mm -hmm. you know, we know from epidemiology that, for example, diabetes could, you know, be about 80% or 90% prevented through lifestyle. Yeah. So genetic basis is down to 10 to 20%. And even of that 10 to 20% that is genetic, we probably have maybe 10% of the genes identified that we can test for. Um, mm -hmm. Predictive ability is a pretty small fraction. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you mentioned there are two things that are important. So, so how genetic is the disease? So what is the contribution of genetics? And you're talking about 80% uh, for the environment, maybe 20% for the genetics. I'm not sure what the exact numbers are, but that is, that is totally true. You know, diseases like type 2 diabetes are largely uh, based on lifestyle. You have a genetic predisposition. That's the same as I always use the example of overweight. Um, I come from a family that, that women tend to gain weight easily. We have many of them mean that uh, you know I cannot do that there's nothing that I can do to lose weight or to stay on a healthy weight I need to because when my genes predisposed to becoming overweight I need to may need to work harder to get to keep it off but it does not mean because I'm predisposed to get overweight that there's no way I can keep it off work my, my, my motivation needs to come out of my toes <laughs> 
<laughs> but it still, still can be done. And that is also what most of the studies show, even for heart disease, that there are also people with high genetic risk. If they keep a healthier lifestyle or when they start changing a lifestyle, then also their risks go down. That's, that is so, and, and that is what, what makes it so difficult at the end of the day for those lifestyle diseases. Everybody has a benefit of keeping a, a healthy lifestyle whether you are genetically predisposed or not predisposed. It's not that your genetics makes a difference in, okay, if you have a bit higher risk for heart disease, maybe you need to do, do, do something extra or you need to, um, you know, there are exceptions where your risk is very high or it's very, very clear that you have high cholesterol and you may, yeah, have some, may need some medication, but for most, especially when it is, a lot of people use it to say, you know, people can feel motivated to change their lifestyle. We should all be motivated to change our lifestyle because we are all at risk for some diseases that may benefit from it. Mm -hmm. yeah, and that's a really great point because, you know, being in primary care, a lot of times we look at family history and oftentimes you see diabetes and heart disease. So a lot of people um, just anticipate that because it's in their family that they would get that disease mm -hmm. um, and just emphasizing that um, the lifestyle component is you know greater than the genetic component um, and you know I've even seen studies where in even in people with higher risk genes the lifestyle was still um, a bigger predictor yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's also when, you, for example, um, there's a lot of uh, uh, buzz around uh, genetic prediction for heart disease. But even if you use those polygenic risk scores for heart disease, that's yeah. um, the people at the highest risks, they, they may have a threefold risk compared to the rest of the people, but their risk of disease is still may, is lower than 10%. So it's still 90% chance that they will not develop heart disease in their life. And that is the, so motivating people to information is so difficult. You know, it is so difficult and it is so, so risks really need to be impressive and shocking. Will people stop their unhealthy behaviors? So a little bit higher risk when your risk increases from 3% to 9% is for most people not enough of an increase to say, Hey, I'm going to prevent those 9%. I want to get it to 3% for, for lay people. Um, I started my, I'm a health psychologist by training and my PhD was on risk perception, not on risk prediction. And, and those changes are just for lay people and I'm a lay person myself, not big enough to change the habit that is so pervasive. You need to, uh, to get the, the, the motivation uh, often doesn't come from risk information, unless the risk information is the difference between having a 10% risk of, of uh, breast cancer or an 80% risk of heart breast cancer. Those are the type of risk increases that people say, okay, yes, maybe I should start at age 25 with mammography instead of at age 50. Mm -hmm. and, and for, you know, cancer is one of those areas where, you know, people are very interested in genetic testing, um, you know, just to have earlier detection if they're predisposed. And you know, with breast cancer, you know, there are some genes like the BRCA, the BRCA gene that is very predictive. And then there are a lot of other genes that can also increase risk. Can you explain the difference between the different types of genes that can get tested? Yeah, so, I, so uh, if I, um, um, to, to explain it in the, in the simplest possible way, which is my preference, uh, I always make the difference between genetic um, mutations and variations. So mutations are more like errors in your DNA. 
an, 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 a code, a part of code in your DNA, in a gene that shouldn't be there. But, uh, so, so it is really an error. That, those are the mutations that give you Huntington. That error that repeats that the mutation in your Huntington gene should not be there. If it's there, you get the disease. But, but for most of the complex diseases that we are looking at, it's not a mutation, it's not an error in a DNA, but just a variation in a DNA. We are just on every genetic marker, we, people just vary. And there is uh, the one variant gives you maybe uh, the, there are certain variants, but they what they uh, they have what they call pleiotropic effects. That means that having one variant on a genetic marker increases, for example, your risk of Parkinson's disease, and having the other increases your risk of schizophrenia. So there is no way that you can say which one is better to have because both may have their advantages and their disadvantages. And there are many markers uh, like that, you know, that's, that's, so people vary um, in those genetic variations. That is the polymorphisms that we are um, creating this polygenic risk scores from. There's variation that is just different and the mutations is more like errors that, that shouldn't be there. And, and the errors and the errors, oh, sorry to interrupt you. Um, the errors are usually rare. You know, that's, Huntington is a rare disease. In the families, it is frequent because the mutations pass with 50% probability to the next generation. But there are, you know, not too many families with Huntington. And that's the same for all these other rare genetic mutations. Mm -hmm. and, and Cecile, you are, you know, one of the experts in polygenic risk scores and you've mentioned it a few times. Can you explain what a polygen, uh, polygenetic risk score is? Yeah, a you know, polygenic risk score um, is um, it's, it's it's a kind of an algorithm. It's a kind of an, a simple solution on how to, to test many, many uh, genetic variations at once. So if, if, if we are saying that for diabetes, there are hundreds of genetic variants. So our, our DNA is a long string of 3 billion base pairs. And each base pair, when there's enough variation in the base pair, we call it a polymorphism. Polymorphism is a, is a, it's a base pair that varies between people. And so what we do with, with um, polygenic risk scores, if we know that there are hundreds of those base pairs, hundreds of those variants, um, associated with the risk of diabetes, we basically add them all up. We say, okay, okay, say we have 100 of those base pairs, then either people have, and each base pair, you can have one variant of your father, one of your mother. So on each base pair, you can have zero risk, zero variants that increase your risk of diabetes, or one, that comes from your father or your mother, or two. And if we test 100 of those variants in a polygenic risk score, the minimum score that the person may have is zero, so that they can all, the, the, the non-risk alleles from their, uh, from their parents, or 200, two times 100, if, if, if the parents give all the risk alleles for all those markers. But most of that we see that it's a kind of a normal distribution and that people sit a bit around, uh, around it in the middle. So it is basically a way on a very simplified, enormously simplified. And if you are talking about missing heritability, why can we not predict better when we look at so many variants? It is also maybe because our formula that we are using to predict is maybe way, way, way too simple. And um, when you look at these polygenic uh, risk scores compared to, um, you know, for example, just looking at, um, you know, some of the more direct-to-consumer testing that's available. Um, mm -hmm. 
does, by what degree does that increase the risk prediction? Like, you know, for example, being in primary care, if a person comes to our office with a family history of, of breast cancer or heart disease, we're gonna look for risk factors that we know exist. Above and beyond those traditional risk factors, like testing cholesterol, blood sugar, blood pressure, or mammography, et cetera, how much better um, do you, can you drill down? You know, every you know, we're really interested in personalizing healthcare, but how much better is it with the genetic testing? Yeah, at, at this moment, at this moment, uh, not much better because we should not forget that um, if you think about heart disease and you think about cholesterol and blood pressure and and all these factors that you measure in in your practice, the genes that are associated with with heart disease. Um, are not randomly associated with heart disease. They are associated with heart disease because they, they predispose, for example, blood pressure, or they predispose cholesterol levels. And because cholesterol level increases your risk of heart disease on a population, you cannot say for a single individual with high cholesterol that they will get heart disease within a certain period of time. But it's all about risk. It's all about increasing the likelihood that. And, um, and that is also what we... Um, what we need to keep in mind when we're thinking about genetic te testing, all those susceptibility variants that increase your likelihood of getting heart disease, they may act through the blood pressure pathway, or they may act through the cholesterol pathway. And when they predispose a factor that you are already measuring in your clinical practice, then epidemiology tells you that those early factors, the genes, don't matter anymore. And so that is why we see that, 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 especially for diseases where lifestyle is so important and where also blood pressure and cholesterol and all in your glucose level give actionable information, huh? you, can, you can target to get those lowered, then the, the, the genes don't add that much. And the question is whether it will be, uh, it, it will be any better, but um, we need to get to more sophisticated modeling. And to get to, to if, if I may, um, um, may make uh, one additional comment, so I was trying to explain the polygenic risk score, which wasn't easy. But if you compare it to what you are doing, if you are um, seeing a patient and you are taking their blood pressure and their cholesterol and their glucose level, then you take that information in your head together to decide how, what this tells about their risk. And so what the polygenic risk score is doing, what you do in your head, or using the framing of risk score for heart disease, is what um, the polygenic risk score does with a bit with a statistical model. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and that's a great explanation. And you know, you know, there are probably people listening to us who, for example, may have a family history of Alzheimer's. And I know just for my patients, that's certainly a disease that um, is of high concern. Um, mm -hmm has, say, Alzheimer's disease in their family history, and they want to know if they are at risk, is there a type or a recommendation you would have for genetic testing, or, or would you recommend that they don't get genetic testing? Or how would you advise a person who's in that situation? Yeah, and, and for those questions, I always refer back to a doctor. I'm not a doctor, um, but, um, but here's the thing. So, so with Alzheimer's, there are a few genetic mutations that make Alzheimer's disease more likely in certain families. Those are rare. But there is also a common variant, um, the APOE gene, which is not too rare and increases your risk of Alzheimer's significantly. 
So it says like if, if you would do a polygenic risk score for Alzheimer's disease, that test is actually quite predictive. That may increase your, um, that may tell you that your risk for Alzheimer's disease is much higher than of other people. But the problem is that so far there's not so much that people can do to reduce that risk. And then we always hear that people say, yeah, why, why then would you take it if there's nothing you can do? And I, I always give, make that a personal decision because we cannot decide for other people whether they want to know that information, yes or no. You have the monitors and the blunters. The monitors want to know all the risk information and are calm if they, if they know enough. And you have the blunters that say, oh, no, no, I want to hear anything and then I'm, I'm happy. Uh, so, but that, that's everyone's preference. So sometimes people say, if I know that I'm in increased risk, and that's what we hear among people who have those hereditary diseases, some people say, I would like to know whether I will get Huntington disease. There's nothing I can do, but then at least can plan my life in such a way um, that, you know, I do my, my most exciting things before I will get ill. And other people will decide that they don't want to know because they cannot live a relaxed life if, if they know for certain that they will get it. That's such a personal decision. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the main themes of our discussion is just this interaction between genes and the environment. So even if you have these genes that increase susceptibility, but at the end of the day, you have a lot of control over the outcome through your environment. And I wanted to maybe talk a little bit about how our environment and our genes interact um, in terms of expressing our genes. Um, so, you know, we there's a lot out there in the medical literature, for example, that even some of these genes that we are calling disease genes are assuming that the ones we haven't discovered are disease genes, say for Alzheimer's or, or heart disease. Mm -hmm may not even be disease genes, they're normal genes, but we're not normally expressing them because mm -hmm. our genes adapted to an environment of, you know, our ancestors where, you know, we ate different foods back then, you know, thousands of years ago, and we, you know, walked an average of six to 10 miles a day, and our lifestyle's so different that it's the way we're expressing some of our really normal genes that's contributing to disease. Um, yeah. You explain this, you know, kind of interaction between our, our genes and our environment. Yeah, yeah. Now, so this this answer I, I must pass on to your on your next uh, to your next guest in the in a future episode because um, I I do not know enough um, of this topic. I know that indeed um, how the genes are expressed and also at at which phase of life and in which context matters a lot. That is also why. Uh, some people are very, very skeptic that looking at static information, so your genes is just static information, you have it at birth and you carry it with you all the time. How can that predict diseases that, you know, occur in some, some time of your life? There must be expression factors uh, also that make your risk at one point more likely, <laughs> more higher or lower. And that is, so there I, I am totally um, uninformed about the science, how, how that uh, um, uh, how it works, um, what the progress is, uh, what, what we know. But I think that that is one of the reasons why the genetics itself predicts so very poorly. Because it's not only the predisposition that you have, but I think under the uh, um, influence of the environment, how it gets expressed. And that's all I'm going to say about it, uh, because, <laughs> because I, I don't want to make errors in this, in this topic. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. 
Cecile, this is uh, just tremendous. Yeah. You know, I there's so many more questions I, I could ask you, but I, I know our time is up. I'm gonna um, let you um, maybe if there are any um, to topics or points that we didn't get a chance to say today. If there's anything you would like to um, add before uh, we wrap up, I'm, I'm gonna let you uh, maybe touch on it. Yeah, I, so, so, uh, um, uh, and it is, I do not know whether the topic is relevant for this, uh, for this, uh, this audience and for this conversation, but what we always should know, uh, always should remember is that genetics, your DNA is at the same time very predictive for some diseases and not predictive at all for others. Um, we should not get the impression that it's just useless because if it's useless, you don't care about that companies may have your DNA. You don't care whether they get sold to bigger companies and, but I think we should always be aware that if you get sequenced at one point, that you give away very, very predictive information about yourself too. And that was, one, that was a problem that I recently had with uh, certain companies um, that were on the Helix platform, where Helix, uh, the, the company, would sequence your DNA, but would only give to your exercise company only the few polymorphisms that you need for their uh, exercise advice. But at the same time, your mutations and everything was, was stored in the background. And we should always be careful that if you do genetic testing, know what you are giving away. Because it's, it's, at the same time, it's, it's, it's fun for a lot of diseases, so for a lot of fun traits, but it's very serious predictive information uh, on other parts of your DNA. Oh, that's just such an important point. Cecile, thank you. And for our listeners, I um, also want to add that Cecile is um, quite an expert on research integrity and ethics. Um, and you can follow her on Twitter as I do at Cecile Hansen's. And I learn a lot just from your posts. So I invite everyone to follow you because it's, it's really just so insightful. That is so kind of you. <laughs> thank you. And, and thank you for your time today and for all the wonderful information that you shared. You are very welcome. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org slash livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.